Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Jacqueline Mitchard at Carver County's Chanhassen Public Library. Book Club favorite Jacqueline Mitchard is the author of 10 acclaimed novels to date. Her 1996 debut, The Deep End of the Ocean, propelled the author to superstar status after Oprah Winfrey chose it as the inaugural selection for her wildly popular book club. Hollywood adapted the story into a movie of the same name, starring Michelle Pfeiffer and Whoopi Goldberg. Mitchard's newest book, Tooth by Sea, hit shelves in March 2016. The story follows a retired police officer grieving after the recent and sudden loss of his family and his relationship with a young ward who exhibits apparent telepathic abilities. Soulful and emotionally arresting, Tooth by Sea masterfully mines the place where catastrophic loss meets near-impossible hope and healing, praised novelist Paula McLean. Don't be, don't be frightened by the sight of this book, okay? I'm not going to read to you. I actually am going to read one page of this book. Uh, nothing is more excruciating than being read to, even by an author whom you admire or like. I, I, I teach in, um, in a number, a couple of uh, MFA programs with people, with authors of renown who are great friends of mine. And when someone gets up and says, I'm just going to read from a few short sections of this book, I think, what kind of illness can I fake to, <laughs> to try to get out of the room without offending anyone? Because um, it's just, it's too awful. Anyway, tonight, I just want to talk a little bit about stories and about um, about happiness before stories and in writing stories and the happiness that writing or the happiness that stories bring to people and how that sometimes plays itself out in strange ways. I, um, I was, when I was thinking about what I might say tonight, I was thinking about what Flaubert said about being uh, orderly and, and, um, and uh, what did you say? Be, be, be regular and orderly in your life so that you can be violent and creative in your work. And certainly it's true for me that when I write, I need to be happy. I have done lectures about the great unhappy writers, about Hemingway and about Fitzgerald and about the effect of, of being, um, being a person who lived in turmoil or who abused drugs and alcohol and how that had an effect on their work. And many people say, but those things may spark creativity. And maybe they do, but only for a very short time. <laughs> now, Hemingway lived a long time as, as a drinker who was, uh, who was not orderly in his life. Um, Scott Fitzgerald did not live a very long time. And many of the wonderful 
poets, many of the poets um, like Sarah Teasdale and, uh, and, uh, and others, wonderful lyric poets who also were drinkers and who lived hard, as they say. It didn't, they had enormous amounts of, cre Anne Sexton is another one, had enormous amount of creativity, but not staying power. I think it's because it's really, writing's really difficult. Whenever I go to an event and I have buddies in the audience who are other writers, as I did the other night, William Martin, the wonderful historical novelist who wrote Cape Cod and Back Bay, and the mystery writer Hallie Efron, who's, uh, who's a much older sister, uh, Nora, wrote Sleepless in Seattle. Hallie writes uh, wonderful sort of cozy mysteries. We're saying things to people like, yeah, it beats having a real job. <laughs> well, this is much harder than a real job. And the reason that it's harder is because you write a story and you think that this story, you're going to give it to your agent. And the agent's going to say, Jackie, this isn't just the best book you've written. It's the best book anyone has written. <laughs> and you have that illusion for about a week. And then the agent actually reads the story and gets back to you and says, you know, there's much to love here, but, um, but not chapter 23. Or, and why do you have these people meeting at the store? And what about the priest? What's he doing in there? And take all that stuff out. Just rewrite everything. And so you do, and then the agent sells it, and the editor uh, gets the book, and the editor says, I'm sorry, but I think a woman who's that devout would have a strong relationship with her priest. Why? <laughs> Why is there no priest in this book? And I'm not making that up. That actually really happened to me. And so you have to, you know, I, I tell my students, don't ever get rid of your outtakes. You might have to put them back into the book someday, into this book or another book. Uh, and so, and there's also the effect that books have on people. You know, we're at a library tonight. And of course, libraries are the temple of books. And libraries also are, when people ask me, and they don't ask me this that much, but when they, if people were to ask me what being an American citizen means, among other things, for me, it would be having access to a free public library, having access to all kinds of knowledge and a clean, well-lighted place that for a dollar, a library card, you can go and read the news and you can have access to knowledge. What is the first thing that people destroy when they want to destroy a culture? They destroy its books. They destroy its libraries. And so to me, this is this right here, and may it last forever, is the, the hallmark of what, of one of the, of the freedoms that we enjoy in this country is access to this kind of richness for so little. And, um, and that the fact that libraries, that libraries are always, talk about independent bookstores, but libraries are always on the edge of sliding into the abyss. And sometime, somehow, they always come back because they are the community center of the mind for so many people. I, um, and they have, they also, for authors, all authors, not all authors, many authors were that lonely kid. You know, Oprah Winfrey was that lonely kid who went to the library and read all the books and then the, the librarian had to start borrowing books from other libraries in order for the, to keep that kid reading. And I was that kid too. I was that kid on the west side of Chicago reading, uh, reading all the books that I could get my hands in because those stories were a solace to me. They were a solace to me because the rest of my life was difficult. I had difficult parents. They were living those kind of lives that Hemingway and Fitzgerald were living. And, um, and they were living them to the fullest. And so I took refuge in the stories that I read. And I still do that. They solace me. And that's one of the things that I'm going to talk about in just a few minutes. I'm going to tell you two stories about stories. In any case, uh, the, 
the, the first story that I'm going to tell you about stories is scary. <coughs> and it happened at the beginning of this book tour. I was, started this book tour in Portland, Oregon. Just a great place. You know, a lovely, uh, a lovely, gentle place where people are happy, and not just because marijuana is legal there. Uh, in fact, none of the people who, uh, who I was hanging around with had ever been to a pot dispensary. I went to one so that I could send pictures to my children, to my older children who are in their 20s of me holding big jars of pot, <laughs> and that so that they would say, Mom, um, because, you know, that's one of the things you um, never imagine your mother doing, you know, among the wide range of hideous things your mother could do. And I have nine children, so my children know that I've done a few of them. Anyway, not pot. Um, so anyway, I, uh, we were having a wonderful time, my intern Stephanie and I, and, uh, and then one day I was teaching a master class, and a guy walked in. And he was dressed so well, he had a beautiful suit on, nice hat, dressed to the nines. And he hugged me, and I thought, I know this guy from somewhere, but it was like seeing your priest at the swimming pool. You know, he was dressed in something I didn't recognize, he was in a place that I didn't recognize, doing something I didn't recognize, and he said, it's Michael. It's Michael Angel. And I, I'm the guy who works for Alaska Airlines, you know, your biggest fan. When I heard your biggest fan, I thought of the Stephen King book, Misery. And, and I was glad that we were in this big building. And then I was ashamed of myself because I thought I shouldn't judge people that way. And, uh, and he said, I came, I came here from, we're in Oregon, I came here from Idaho to see you and to see if I could take you out to dinner. Uh, I, what had happened in Idaho was that when I was flying back from there, the wheels fell off my suitcase. I travel a great deal, and I wear out suitcases the, other, the way other people wear out tennis shoes. And the wheels fell off, and he helped me get it on the plane, and as a, res as a gratitude for that, I sent him a couple of books, and, and we wrote back and forth a couple of times, and I think from that, because those stories made him happy, he said that he felt some of them were written just for him. He thought that we were friends or something. And when we got back to the hotel, the guy at the desk said, did your best friend find you? And I said, mm, and because he checked into the room next to yours to surprise you. And I was surprised. And I thought about that poor woman, Erin, I can't think of her last, yeah. And then I thought if he drills a hole in the wall and looks through it, <laughs> serves him right. And, um, and I didn't think about that anymore. And Stephanie and I went out to dinner and he came to the restaurant, <laughs> sat down at our table, said, go ahead and eat, don't let me bother you. And of course, we were never gonna eat again. And, we, and Stephanie said, oh, don't you remember you have an interview with, uh, uh, Barack Obama. Um, so <laughs> we have to go back right away. And so we did, and we wrapped up our food, and then we sat there and thought, and I said, he's really a nice person. She said, no, he's not. He's a creep. We got to do something. So I called a great friend of mine named Gavin DeBecker. Has anyone ever heard of him? He is the world's acknowledged authority on security. The movie The Bodyguard was about Gavin. Though even then, Gavin didn't look like, like Kevin Costner looked then. <laughs> he looks a little more like Kevin Costner looks now. And, um, and he wrote a book called The Gift of Fear, which if you have never read it, you really should read it. It's extraordinary. And through stories, it tells uh, why you should trust your instincts about people, not 90% of the time, but 100% of the time, because they're always right. Even if the person never hurts you, even if the person never does the wrong thing. If you feel the person is creepy, the person is creepy, and you know, you should trust your instincts all the time. And I, I met Gavin by stalking him, actually. <laughs> I, I talked to him, I talked wherever I would go after I first read The Gift of Fear, I would say to people, you have to read this book. It is extraordinary. The stories in it are compelling. And 
The way that he puts this case together is amazing. It's a wonderful book. And after a while, he wrote to me. And he said, I hear you've been talking all over the country about my book. You know, if, you ever, uh, if you're ever in Fiji, which is <laughs> where he lived, come and stay with us. You know, we have a big place, lots of different guest houses. I said, OK, I'll be there in May. <laughs> and I did. I went there with two of my kids, and we stayed for three weeks. But we became great pals, and I had a sense that we would. He doesn't live in Fiji anymore. No one knows where Gavin lives. But where he lives, it was the middle of the night. And I emailed him, and he answered me right away. And he said, what's wrong? And then he called me, and I told him about this guy. And he said, you have to go next door right now, knock on his door, and give him an unequivocal rejection. And I said, so you're where you are. I'm here. <laughs> and if he sets me on fire, then you're just going to read about that, right? And he said, no, no, he's not going to set you on fire. He's a planful guy. He could escalate, but that would be planful, or he'll just leave you alone. And I said, OK. And I did. I went back next door. Hello. Michael, we cannot be friends. We have no relationship. I can't stop you from reading my books, but I'm very uncomfortable. You frighten me. Leave me alone. Left. The, and, and that was that except when we got to the next state, he was there too. And so, uh, so I called Gavin back, and later on I saw this guy who looked like all the US Marines <laughs> in the whole world having a chat with this fella. And, and then the guy kind of going out to the parking lot. And that time he did stay away, and he apologized. It, now, you know, I mean, you don't have to be you don't have to be pretty in order to be stalked. You don't have to be uh, a movie star in order to be stalked. People just have to believe that your stories are directly linked somehow to their personal happiness and their personal lives, and they are. I mean, when we think of, uh, of t uh, the people who were prisoners in Iraq, the first uh, group of people, the. Uh, Terry Waits, I interviewed Terry Waits in the 80s after he got back from being a prisoner. And he was an Episcopal priest. And he did not know how to speak the language of his captors. They did not know how to speak his language. But they asked him, they were just young guys. And they weren't particular radicals or anything. They were just doing what they were supposed to do. And they, he said, is there anything you need? They said, do you, you want something? And he said, give me the orange books. So think about what that is. They're Penguin Classics. They're orange paperbacks. So he knew that whatever he got from them would be a good book, and he would enjoy it. And so he, uh, he got those books, and, he, and later on he told me, if you have a book, you can never be a prisoner, even in your own body, because you can always take solace in stories. I, uh, I have one last story to tell you before I read from this book and before I tell you about the relationship between this book and happiness or unhappiness and the relationship between the deep end of the ocean and happiness or unhappiness. Uh, and it was the first time I signed this book, it was in uh, the town where I lived for many, many years, Madison, Wisconsin. And just like St. Paul, yeah? It's just like St. Paul. And a woman came up to me, and she was so pretty, um, probably 10 years younger than I am, and dressed beautifully. And I said, do you want me to personalize it? And she said, no, I won't be able to keep it. I just want you to sign your name. I'll be giving my whole library to other people, because I'm dying. And it took my breath away. She said, I have maybe, maybe three months, maybe four months to live. Things are going quickly now. And three or four months is not a very long time to live, but it's a long time to read a lot of stories. And the stories, even now, take me out of the despair that I face, that I have to leave this good world, uh, because I can. they are my harbor. They're the place that I go that I can escape from the everyday of my life, which right now is not so good into the everyday of someone else's life. 
And I was profoundly moved by that, as I'm sure you are, by hearing that someone who um, facing that would not just be running around the room screaming and crying, though she said she had done that, but immersing herself in reading stories. And of course, what would you do? You know, what would you do? When, uh, when Alice Hoffman, uh, a, uh, a pal of mine who started the Hoffman uh, Breast Cancer Center in Boston, was facing breast cancer, before she went in to have her surgery, she finished her novel, even though it took an extra month, because she wanted to have solace in stories. She wanted the power and the solace of stories. And that is true of so many writers facing so many crises, and so many readers facing so many crises. When I wrote The Deep End of the Ocean, it was, I began it, I guess, 20 years ago, almost today. 20 years ago today, Sergeant Pepper taught the band to play. <laughs> I, uh, I, and I wrote it because I was widowed in my 30s, and my husband died very young from colon cancer. He was only at the beginning of his 40s. We were, uh, we were, I can remember that we were political reporters, both of us, and, and we were dancing at the inauguration, the second inauguration of the, of the first President Clinton. I mean, who knows? Who knows what'll happen? Um, anyway, we were, we, <laughs> we were dancing, and, uh, he, and he said to me, someday we're gonna tell our grandchildren that we danced with the president. And four months later, Dan was dead. And I had three little boys. I had nothing. I had no life insurance. We hadn't gotten to that part yet. But I thought, I'm going to write a story. It's going to be a sad story. But I'm going to write a story to prove to myself, even though I wasn't one of those reporters who had a novel in the drawer, to prove to myself that there's going to be life on the back 40 for me, that I have a lot of life left to kill, and I'm going to prove to myself that there's something that I'm going to do with it. And I don't know if it'll even be published. Or I don't know if it'll be published by a guy who just has a copy machine in his basement. But I'm going to finish it, and that's going to be proof to me that there's a reason to go on. And I did, and, you know, it, it took off. And we even, we were, I used to tell the children, if we have to live in the car, I'll have someone come and clean the car uh, every month or so, so we won't live in a bad car. But we ended up getting a minivan, and you know, and we could clean it ourselves because it was better than the old police car that my father had given us and that we were driving. Though that had a heck of a big engine, I must say. <laughs> Five years ago, uh, I, I had been frugal with my money and careful with it. Five years ago, my husband met a guy from Minnesota. And he had been an investment advisor, but he had given it up to be a, a full-time crook. And uh, he stole everything that I had ever made, including the kids' savings accounts from their, um, from, uh, their summer jobs. Nothing was too small. Uh, he's in the, he made a deal and said he would give all the money back. It was restitution. And then he went before the federal judge and he said, I don't know where that money is, though his four brothers had moved to Panama, I guess for the climate. <laughs> and uh, and he, went, he said, I'll do the time. And he went to prison and I'm sure he'll be out in, in maybe six years, though he got 25 years, because it'll be like the <laughs> Shawshank Redemption. He'll give everybody in jail good investment advice because he's a smart guy. Um, but we'll never see any of that money again. And for a year, I was in such despair, I couldn't even think of writing a sentence, much less writing a book. And then time went by, and I thought to myself, are you going to let this win? And I said, no, not going to, not going to let him win. And I started this book which is about a guy who has lost everything and all hope, 
who finds a little boy in the, in the flood that follows the tsunami in Brisbane, a little boy who can do something remarkable. It's a thriller. It's a thriller about being good and about compelling people to be good, which doesn't sound very thrilling. But there's a great deal of mayhem in this book. Uh, when one thing happens to Frank Mercy and he gets over it, and then the next thing happens to him. And he has to keep bad guys away from this little boy, this little four-year-old boy called Ian, who can do this. This is the American Sign Language uh, sign for behave or be good. Behave, give me $10,000. Behave, give me that pre-Columbian figure. And that's what the bad people who have had custody of Ian have forced him to do in exchange for getting him matchbox cars, matchbox cars and, and jelly beans. And Frank has to uh, protect Ian, never knew that he would be a father, never knew that he would be charged with taking care of a child, again, a child who is remarkable and can actually cause people to be good. But think about it. We sometimes expect people to be bad, but if someone was that extraordinarily good, that might be very unsettling to people. I mean, look what happened to some of the big religious figures um, in history who, who dared to speak on behalf of everyone being good to each other. Um, it's, it can be very unsettling. Anyway, uh, Publishing this book, finishing this book, and getting it published was a sign to me that I had come back, that I had won no matter how the book did, and no ma and fortunately, it's, it's getting really nice reviews and everything. And, um, but it was a sign to me that I was back, that my life could go on, and that I could have the privilege of giving people stories again. And so, no matter what happened, it would have been hopeful. It was happiness that came from a place of great despair. And now, because I want you to have time to ask questions about important things, like what kind of mascara Oprah Winfrey really wears, because I know that, <laughs> I'm going to read you one page of, uh, one page of 2F by C. He would never remember it as a wave. A wave was too mere a word, although there were hundreds of photos and pieces of film, some shot just at that moment near this very spot. Frank could look at these and remained unmoved, but then he would close his eyes and let himself return, and the six sweats would sweep down his breastbone like a sluice of molten ice. He would hear a dog's one mournful howl and feel the heavy apprehension, like those times in uniform days as a cop, when a traffic stop went completely to hell and a fist came flying in from nowhere, but monumentally worse. He saw the wave as a gleaming dam standing upright in the moonlight, 50 feet tall, extending so far in either direction he couldn't see the end. And then it collapsed in place, and it was water, surging lustily forward, drowning every building on the beach, including the Murray Sandcastle Inn, where Frank's pregnant wife and her entire extended family lay asleep for one breath. Frank saw the inn, its porch strung with merry lanterns, red and gold and green, and in the next breath, he saw it all disappear. Every light went out faster than it was possible to think the words to describe it. He cried out, no, and he sprinted across the car park to their little Morris Mini Minor. Water was already frothing around the tires. Frank pulled open the door, threw himself into the seat, found his keys and gained the highway and drove until he could drive no more. And the cars were clotted around him. The cars stopped. Frank got out and walked. Others walked too. An old man struggled under the weight of a gray-lipped girl. She was perhaps 10 or 11 years old and her sweet lifeless face had closed in a smile, her nose and eyes pouring saltwater tears. A young woman was wearing just one shoe. She cut, clutched a bundle of wet clothes, among them a child's small jersey embroidered with Santa Clauses. A man Frank's own age sat sobbing near a great blooming frangipani tree. 
Frank avoided their eyes. He thought he might be able to get someplace that he could think, but he only walked farther. He met people hiking toward him, or saw them sitting in their cars, or standing still by the roadside, their hands like the pendulums of broken clocks. Then he became close to a large group gathered around a car whose young driver had taken the speakers out. A basso voice from the radio intoned, now you will hear that the tsunami happened because of climate change, friends. You will hear that it struck our coast because of a tropical storm deep in the Pacific. You will hear that this was a random event. But do you believe that? Do you believe? How can any man believe that it was coincidence that water swept into the Sodom of Brisbane on this very hallowed night? Intelligent people will say that we have failed to take care of our earth. But the Lord God Almighty does not care about the climate. He cares about the climate of our souls. As it says in Matthew, therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour and so it has come. Frank walked around a curve and the preacher's voice faded to a series of thumps like, the song, like a song from the car passing the open window of the farm where Frank grew up. A pale vein of light lolled on the horizon. It would soon be dawn on Christmas morning. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Jacqueline Mitchard and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how Mitchard is able to come up with some of the amazing descriptions throughout her books. I tell my daughters, uh, I tell my daughters and my sons, uh, not my grown-up sons, because don't, they don't listen to anything I say, but I tell my younger kids, the teenagers, being smart is just paying attention. It's not really memorizing things. It's not really... Uh, being better at math than anyone else. It's just paying attention and sort of doing what you're supposed to do. And when you pay attention to things, sometimes they reveal themselves to you in unusual ways. And you know what that means. You know seeing a sky. You know that seeing a, a summer sky or a lake or something, it, that it just shouts at you with its beauty. And um, so you know exactly what that means, and, um, and that's why you think it's, some people say, and I can't think of the, the person who said this, that the real author of a story is the reader. You're the ones who really, you know, I write this story down, but you're the ones who really live it and interpret it. Our next question is what Mitchard's writing process looks like. I have four jobs. And I have nine kids and four jobs. Six of the kids, only, well, five, there are five kids still at home, and then the revenant, who's living in the basement. One of the older kids, he doesn't know that we think that he's, that we know that he's there. He comes up in the night and gets his food. Um, but he has a good job now. He'll be moving soon. But uh, we have, um, so I have a lot of responsibilities. I'm a book editor for a realistic young adult imprint called Merit Press. I uh, teach in two MFA programs, and I also write books. So to start a book, I do all the research first before I ever start writing. So for this book, I had to research mounted police, how, what they did for their work, the kinds of injuries that horses could get, like equestrian horses could get, and, uh, and uh, computer theft, art theft, all kinds of other things. And then, when I have to start or end a book, when I really have to break the back of the beginning or the end, I try to get a residency, usually at the Ragdale Foundation, uh, where, um, where I'm on the board of curators and they can't, you know, stop me. Uh, in, that's in Lake Forest, Illinois. And I go there and work for a couple of weeks for 12 hours a day and try to write 100 pages and then it's underway. Then I can fill things in when I have three or four hours at home. And then, but to finish it, to write 
a symphonic ending for a book, then I have to go away again. The process takes about nine months to a year. The next book that I am writing, well, it's finished, but it's not fixed yet. I have to fix it. It'll take me a few days to fix it, a few days alone to fix it, is a classic ghost story based on the Roanoke legend. So, and it's, it's very creepy. Another audience member wonders, what was the most difficult book for Mitchard to write? Uh, okay, the most challenging book to write was a book called Still Summer. It was about a, a bunch of women who uh, were on a, uh, a, bear bo a bear boat yacht crossing from, uh, I think it was from St. Martin's to Grenada at, with a two-person two crew who in an accident were killed and then they had to navigate the boat themselves and they ran into all kinds of trouble including um, pirates and there are plenty of pirates out there. Uh, in fact, what they call the Bermuda Triangle and things that disappear usually are people who, uh, uh, who board boats and uh, kill everybody and take all their stuff and then uh, sink the boat. But um, I had to learn about the names of boats and navigating them and what could go wrong and whether it was authentic. And so that was a very, I thought this would be easy. I thought it would be like a sail in the Caribbean, but it was not easy. It was a very hard book to research and write, and I still like it very much. This question is if Mitchard knows the ending of a book before she starts writing. I know the end of my story, and I'm the only writer on earth who knows the end of the story, but this way. Like, I know if I'm go getting on the train, I'm going to go to St. Paul. I know the eventual ending. I don't, and sometimes I even know the words that it will end with, and how it will recapitulate the beginning of the story, and, and the rest of the book is in some ways getting to that. Uh, symphonic ending and making sure that the book doesn't drag and that it's filled with excitement and, and, and endearing things and moving things uh, because, uh, but if I don't feel safe uh, starting out blindly and just writing about a care, and I would never write a book that, I would never say, well, I want to write a book about justice or I want to write a book about divorce. I only start out to write books about people and then put them in trouble and then figure out how they're going to, going to get out of the trouble or not get out of the trouble. And that is, um, that's the nature of the story. Many people say that it's like a mountain and when you get to almost the, almost the top, then you know what the ending's going to be and you're going uh, toward that ending. But I know from the beginning, yeah. An audience member notes that many authors will admit that their characters surprise them during the writing process. Is this also true for Jacqueline Mitchard? I am the boss of them. <laughs> and I know in a general way how they're going to act and I don't want them to act out of character. I don't want them to do things that they wouldn't do. But each of them is me and I am each of them each of them is a piece of me and I, you know, and I'm the director and I wrote the script and I also play all the parts. So each of those people is, though they're very different from each other and they sound different from each other, they're, all of them are part of the author, though they're based on other people. Frank Mercy is based on me, though he's a guy. He's a 40-year-old guy and I've never been a 40-year-old guy and I certainly will never be a 40-year-old anything ever again. <laughs> um, but it, uh, but it, he is based on me. Beth Capadora in The Deep End of the Ocean is based on my brother. He still doesn't believe that, but it's true. This question asker wonders if Mitchard's children ever play a role in the writing of her novels. Yes, yes they do. When he was five years old, my son Marty made up the title The Deep End of the Ocean. You cannot believe what a bad title I had before. <laughs> and I will not even tell you what it was. And he, he said, is there a deep end of the ocean like the pool? You know, the five feet and the 12 feet? And I said, no, there isn't. 
it's like a bowl and it goes up and down in the middle and he said no ma there is a deep end of the ocean and but if you go there you can't ever come back so I gotta write that down <laughs> and so yes I take quotes from them things that they say all the time they give me input on stories ideas I walk up to them um, you know, with mascara on my face, is looking sort of like Miss Havisham, and say, "What would someone do?" If, you know, and and they have they have ideas. They're very um, they're very willing to participate. Have they read any of my books? Absolutely not, except for that. Mar no, I mean, in fact, one of my teenagers started reading my young one of my young adult books in manuscript. She found out that I had written it. She thought it was good, but she had to stop herself. Um, because reading a book by your known mother, you know, what could be more tedious? Um, this book is dedicated to Marty, that same kid who's, who's 25 now, and, uh, and he actually read this one to validate trying to make sure that Frank was valid as a guy, that he would, would not do things that a real guy wouldn't do, like talk about his feelings. <laughs> or something. I'm teasing, I'm sure. This question is what the rewriting process was like for the film adaptation of The Deep End of the Ocean. It wasn't very rewritten. Um, some part, it was shorter. It's a different thing, and I didn't have anything to do with that, but Ulu Grossbart, who was the director, and Stephen Schiff, who was the screenwriter, they're just tremendous. And there was a... a, a uh, a movie made of another book of mine that will never be released. It was never completed. In, it'll never be released in the United States because of a vendor dispute, which so uh, expensive to resolve. I don't know if like vendors are like people who provide craft services, and I don't mean food. You know, like craft services for uh, the making of a movie. They're so difficult to resolve that they're more expensive than the movie would be. I did not want to be involved with it in any way. Uh, and how did I like the movie? I loved it. I've never seen it all the way through. My kids have seen it all the way through. In fact, it's on all the time. They think it's like a channel. <laughs> and um, so it, it's, it's, uh, it's a very popular, like, on cable type thing. But if I didn't like it, I would also say, I thought it was just great because how unclassy could you possibly be than to say, oh, I just hated it, they ruined it. Because they don't hold a gun to your head and say, you have to take this $100,000 or we're gonna shoot your dog. You do it, on, you do it voluntarily and um, I don't come from the kind of neighborhood where you complain about that. So, um, so I would never. I would never moan about it because I want it to happen again. I want it to happen tomorrow. It means more people will read your book. It's nothing but terrific. Another audience member wonders how Mitchard transitioned from a journalist and political correspondent to a novelist. What was that journey like? Being a reporter helped me enormously. Uh, I wasn't really a political reporter. My husband was. I was there to, to write about uh, the pageantry and the clothes and all the all the things that happened at an inauguration that was that would be fun, and uh, so so I was a, more of a feature writer and I had been a crime reporter when I first started out and I don't know how I became a reporter I majored in biology I went in I was working at a German restaurant and I was wearing a dirndl and. <laughs> I'm not making that up. And I went in, I was walking along in Chicago because you know you can't ever eat where you work. So I was going out for some dinner and I saw a sign on a window that said reporters wanted. It was a weekly newspaper and I went inside and there was this guy sitting there and he had on a bright green, Kelly green pants and a red shirt. And I said, why, why, why are you dressed like that? And he said, why are you dressed like that? You know, because I was dressed like Heidi. And, and so he gave me my first newspaper job. And then we got married. And, um, and I got him his clothes after that, because he was colorblind. I, um, 
anyway, but uh, that's, I, and being a reporter taught me how to get all the right facts from almost anybody. You can call anyone on the phone. You can call anyone on the phone and generally that person, maybe not Lindsay Lohan, but maybe pretty much anyone will pick up if you can get the person's phone number. I have called the queen on the phone. I was doing a story about how famous people sleep, because I'm not a good sleeper, and whether they sleep well. And so I called Buckingham Palace and someone answered and I said, hello, may I, may I please speak to Her Majesty? And incredibly politely the man said, well, it's two o'clock in the morning here, <laughs> and, um, and I'm afraid she's asleep right now. And I said, well, is she a good sleeper? And he said, oh, she passes a very good night every night, eight or nine hours. So of course I got the answer to my question without ever having to ask the person herself. But you can, you can, get inf you can always get the information you need, and that's what I learned is, is there's always, people can say this is a terrible book, but they can't say she got it wrong. Our last question of the night is what everyone is wondering. What mascara does Oprah Winfrey wear? Great lash, the pink and green kind, because she could have any mascara she wanted. I mean, she could have mascara that was made only for her, but she says that's the best, and that's the kind that she uses. Though when I went on her show, I went on her show twice. I am the only author to have said no to Oprah Winfrey, not once, but twice, okay? I um, was, uh, 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 her makeup artist is like, is like Harry Potter. I mean, he, she can do miracles because I looked so good on that show, I wanted to have myself shrink-wrapped and <laughs> shellac so I could just rinse off, you know. But um, I was, when, when I wrote The Deep End of the Ocean, they had those little tape machines and on one morning, I walked into my office in Madison in my basement and said, this is Oprah Winfrey, and I have read The Deep End of the Ocean, and I have been more moved by this story than I've been moved by. Went to the end of the tape, beep, you know, I erased that. I figured someone was horsing around with me. So then the next morning, I said, this, this is Oprah Winfrey, and I don't know if you received my message, but I just wanted to talk to you about The Deep End of the Ocean. We, I can't feature fiction on our show, but I, I just really wanted to tell you, and I erased that too. And then the next morning, my intern came in, Sean, and he said, Jack, I think this really is Oprah Winfrey, because now she's mad. And she said, this is Oprah Winfrey, and I don't know if you even live here or if you're just the rudest person in the world, but if you get this message, could you please do me the courtesy of returning my phone call? That did not go to the end of the tape. So I started to laugh and I called her back and she started laughing. She said, I really can't have you on my show. But then the next day she called back and said, we're gonna start the largest book club in the world. And my publisher said, Jackie, if there's never a second Oprah Winfrey book, you'll always have been the first. <laughs> because they didn't think that would work out either. Books and television are, are antithetical. But by that night, there were 4,000 holds on that book at the New York Public Library. And my publisher said, I think this is working out. <laughs> the second time she called back was, she called me was maybe a year before uh, 2FIC. Was, she heard what had happened to me, how skinned I had gotten. She wanted me to come on her show, Where Are They Now? And my mother-in-law is not here, though she lives in this area. And um, my mother-in-law was in the room and she said, oh, don't be on that show. I mean, think of the words, where are they now? It's like, are they still alive? It's a show for old has-beens. And plus, they're going to think you're like David Cassidy, you know, and you just really put all your money up your nose or something like that. And I said, no, thank you. I don't want to. I hung up. And then time went by, about another year, right before the book came out. Uh, I, they called back again and said, you know, we don't mean you any harm. You haven't really said much about this money theft. Um, it's heartbreaking, and I bet there are a lot of other people who have gone through something not quite so dramatic, but something similar, and they feel the same kind of shame and despair that you do. And so, and we also, you know, would like to talk about your new book. So I did, went out to Los Angeles, and we taped this show, and I had a great outfit, 
and, and, and it was purple, looked really good. And my hair looked really good. And we talked about, you can see it on YouTube, and um, we t it was on a couple of weeks ago on Saturday, and we talked about the book, and we talked about what had happened to me. And she said, so what's the spiritual takeaway of this book about a guy who's lost everything and comes back to uh, reclaiming his life? And I said, there isn't one. And she said, don't you think you were writing about yourself? And that is why she is Oprah Winfrey, and I'm not. <laughs> because, I, of course, writers don't know what they're really writing about. And there are certain, certainly there are things in this book that are entirely taken from that experience. But, but it was fun, and my girls got, my teenagers got their picture taken with Oprah, and now everyone stands when they walk through the high school because they know <laughs> Oprah. Anyway, thank you so much for coming. That wraps up our Chanhassen Public Library event with Jacqueline Mitchard in Carver County. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with J.A. Jantz at 7 p.m. Thursday, April 21st at Dakota County's Galaxy Library. Mystery phenom J.A. Jantz is the mind behind not one, but three blockbuster series featuring retired police detective J.P. Beaumont, Arizona Sheriff Joanna Brady, and news anchor turned sleuth Allie Reynolds. Her latest, Clawback, is the 13th installment in this last series. It debuted in March 2016. Meet J.A. Jantz, get your questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Aroundtown Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.